1: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Lake Point. Glad you're here. Hey, my name is uh, Mike, and I get to be on the teaching team here. And I was, I was watching that little promo for the At The Movies uh, series that's coming up, and I was thinking about how one of the churches I served, uh, they asked me to be one of those characters that kind of roam around and say hi to people. They didn't ask me to be Captain America. They didn't ask me to be Thor. They asked me if I could be Gru from Despicable Me. That's That's what I. That's what I got to play. We have a lot of similarities, Uh, man. Hope you all are having a great summer. Uh, If you're joining us online, so grateful for you. If you're one of one of our campuses, grateful for you as well. And uh, man, I've had a great week. Uh, I got. I started with playing pickup ball up at Richardson High School uh, with a bunch of guys, which proved that man, I am old and pathetic. Uh, but it was, it was really fun. Then I got to attend three different birthday parties this week. Uh, my daughter and her family flew in from California. We had a big bonfire at my son's farm. I got to be all-time pitcher for a wiffle ball. Got to watch kids do slip and slide. And we bought them these uh, huge inflatable balls that you get inside of and you have battles with. It was so fun watching 11-year-old boys just kill each other. It was, it was just a blast. And a really surreal moment happened to us. Uh, we got to watch a granddaughter walk across the graduation stage in Ventura, California. Ten minutes later, I get a text from my son in Kentucky with a video of his one-year-old son walking across the foyer for the first time, taking his first steps. So we had one on this side and one on this side. I was like, oh my goodness, about making a lot of memories. And hope that you're making a lot of memories too, because gang, listen, life goes so fast. And speaking of making memories, I am so excited our students this week that are going to be attending a United Camp—it's uh, it's a life-changing encounter—and so be praying for our students this this week as they are uh, encountering the God of love and they get a get a get a week to hang together and uh, experience what Jesus meant when He said, "I came to give you life to the full." Hey, we are in week week three of the series that we're calling "Live No Lies," and we stole the title from an excellent book by John Mark Comer called Live No Lies, in which he talks about how the enemy of our soul doesn't just want you and me to start telling lies. He wants us to actually live lies. And we're not using much content from that book, although you really ought to check it out because it's a really good book. Just use the title to talk about how the enemy wants to steal our identity. And his strategy is to hack into your soul and mine by using some big time lies. Lies such as I am what I feel. We talked about that in week one. If you missed it, you can go back and and check that out. Last week, we talked about this lie. I am what people say about me. Next week, we're going to unpack the the paralyzing lie that says, I am what I've done. I can't get over my past. And today, I want to expose this lie, the one that says, I am what I do. It's a lie that says my worth, my value, my identity is based on what I do and how well I do it. My performance and my success is what defines me. Now, we all want to be seen as successful people. We all want to be seen as somebody. That, that's why we exaggerate our accomplishments and we pat our stats and we try to hide our failures. If we're honest, we all occasionally work the whole successful image thing. And you want to see image management as absolute glaring best? Go to a 10-year or a 20-year class reunion. Some guy will rent a car, rent a suit, rent a date, rent some hair, try to impress everybody. Hey, you guys voted me least likely to succeed. Then he starts singing Toby Keith. How do you like me now? Right? He's that guy, right? I heard about a woman who was going to attend her 50th high school class reunion. And you know how all of us, we don't think, we look as old as all the other people our age, right? So she walks in the room and thinks this must be some mistake. This cannot be my reunion. This room is just full of old people. This is unbelievable. So she asked this old guy by the door, he said, excuse me, is this, the, uh, is this the class reunion for the class of 1973? He said, yes, it is. She goes, well, wow, I guess this is my class. He said, really, what did you teach? Uh, yeah, so this whole image stuff, this whole expectation of performance and success Man, it starts very early in our culture. You ever sat at a playground with a bunch of toddlers running around and eavesdrop on parents' conversations? When did she start walking? Oh, at two months. When did he start talking right out of the womb? He can say his ABCs. Oh, she can, too, in three different languages. You know, I mean, it's just crazy the competitiveness that's going on. I I played and coached sports uh, most of my life, and I have seen how so many parents try to live their own unrealized athletic dreams through their kids. And they get hyper-competitive, they're yelling at umpires, they're questioning coaches' decisions on the t-ball field, and so driven not to be embarrassed by the performance of their kids that they end up embarrassing their kids. I, I got a buddy who has a son, very good basketball player, uh, Division I scholarship player, had a great college career. But when he was 15 years old, he's playing in an AAU tournament, one of those showcase tournaments where college coaches come to see who they want to recruit and stuff. This kid on the other team that he was playing got two technical fouls and got tossed out of the game. His mom came out of the bleachers and rushed the referee screaming, you can't do that. He's my franchise. He's my franchise. How would you like to carry that pressure as a kid? And the pressure put on kids at school for performance and grades and scholarship and such is enormous. Now Don't get me wrong. I think you ought to do your very best. In fact, it honors God when we excel in our uniqueness. And I really do like those bumper stickers that say proud parent of an honor student. But I'd also like to see one that says, my kid did his best, got a C, and I'm just as proud. The message is this, when at all costs, when the bell goes off, when the starter pistol is fired, do whatever it takes to blow by your classmates, your teammates, your coworkers, your family, your neighbors, be bigger, smarter, stronger, faster, richer, higher, and better than the other guy, the other girl. Because listen, nobody remembers who wins the silver medal. Second place is first loser. You're nobody if you're not the best. And so we compete. H- have you seen these two boys? They actually have become friends, but they, were, they spotted each other at a Philadelphia 76ers uh, basketball game on the Jumbotron. And they start having a dance off across the arena. One's on one side, the other's on the other side, and it gets intense, man. I mean, shirts start coming off. I mean, it's almost like, is that all you got? Check this out. Yeah, it's awesome. Now it goes back to the other side of the, the other side of the arena. There he goes. Yeah, I got it. I got you. <laughs> These guys are awesome, man. <laughs> uh, you gotta love this move right there. There you go. There you go. <laughs> oh man. Oh God. <laughs> and so we spend a lifetime trying to one up each other, don't we? Uh, Even as adults, we go, oh, yeah, well, watch this, right? I want you to see what a guy named Solomon wrote in his journal. And I think he totally nails it. In Ecclesiastes 4.4, when he says this, then I observed that most people are motivated to success by their envy of their neighbors. But this, too, is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. I mean, what is it that makes us run so fast? And work so hard and compete so intensely. Well, part of it is that those are God-given drives. I mean, to work hard, to compete, to achieve, to accomplish, to excel, to rise, even to win. They're all good things. They've been hardwired into us by a hardworking, very excellent God. And when those things are channeled in a healthy, humble kind of way, we flourish and even honor God with our lives. But as I look around and see so many people with those drives, out of balance and out of control, I think it points to something else. We touched on it last week. I think it's our hunger for acceptance. I believe a lot of us spend our lives chasing those elusive attaboys, those elusive, that's my girl, hungry for approval, affirmation, and acceptance. I mean, most workaholics grew up in a performance-based environment where acceptance and love was earned. And gang, the love need in kids is so strong that if you have to perform, if you have to excel, if you have to produce, compete, and climb to get approval, you'll do just about whatever it takes to get that love. So fast forward, and you'll find that man or that woman in their adult years still striving, still producing, still performing, still longing to hear what they seldom heard growing up. You are loved. You're appreciated. You're good. You're important. I am so proud of you. Starved. For unconditional love, that man or woman says, I feel like a nobody, and I hate that feeling, and I am going to be somebody, and I'm going to prove to everybody that I am a somebody. And if it takes long hours, if it takes seven days a week, if it costs me my health, if it costs me my marriage, if it costs me my kids, if it costs me my soul, I will pay that price because I can't stand feeling like a nobody. So I will perform, I will produce, I will earn, accumulate, strive, drive, and win until I am respected, accepted, and admired. And you know what? We might end up with a few trophies, millions of followers on Twitter, some plaques on a wall, a nice financial portfolio and such, but after spending our lives working the image and playing the game, we find that we've never fully lived And never fully loved because we never really knew who we were. And I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus came along and he asked this question. And what do you benefit? If you like gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul in the process, that just doesn't make sense. He tells us instead, seek God first. Seek the kingdom of God first. Get to know him first and everything else in your life, including your identity, will all fall in line. I think that's why God started the Ten Commandment list by saying, okay, we got to get first things first. Check it out, Exodus 20. Do not worship any other gods besides me. Do not make images of any kind, whether in shape of birds or animals or fish. You must never worship or bow down to them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not share his, your affection with any other God. Now listen, God is not on an ego trip when he says all that he's just jealous for you. He's jealous for me because he wants us to experience what Jesus describes as life to the full. And he knows that if we don't look to him first for our worth and our truth and and his unfailing love, we're going to get our priorities way out of whack and we're going to wreck our lives. Here's how I think this works. I hope this will make sense to you. It's kind of a what I would call an identity theft cycle. When we buy the lie of I am what I do, we start with image at the top we put that at the very top we're going to pursue that image this is the picture our world says of what a successful life looks like so we put that first and we buy in if I'm going to pursue this image I got to have the right clothes right car right home I got to buy the right home in the right neighborhood get the right job reach the right kind of position on that job hang with the right people that could get me into the right places so we spend our lives chasing this man-made image of success And as we run after it, we find pretty soon it's consuming our life. All of our energies, all of our time, all of our affections, all of our attention, all of our resources and our thoughts are set on that image. And what God may want for our life really isn't given a second thought because honestly all of our worship and devotion is spent bowing before the image. Have you been there? Man, I have. The Bible has a word for that. The Bible calls it idolatry, which simply means the worship of anything other than God. Now, we wouldn't call it that, but that's what it is. It's bowing before another image other than God. And the really sad thing is now our identity becomes a worshiper of the image. And we're so wrapped up in what we do and how we're seen by other people, it can turn us into self-absorbed, ungrateful, insecure approval addicts. And when it all comes crashing down, and gang, it will. You have no idea who you really are because you never really got to know God. If anything, he's just the God that you've been asking to help you achieve the image that you're worshiping. And that is such a crazy-making, frustrating cycle to get sucked into. Does that make sense to you? Luke 18, we meet a young guy caught in that spin cycle of identity theft. This was a guy committed to keeping up the image. And by all means, it looked like he had it all together. He's working the image, you know, skinny Jean Toga, Gucci's on his feet. He's wealthy, he's young, he's handsome, abs of steel. He's cover boy from Mediterranean GQ, driving a Bentley chariot with all the options. By all appearances, he had life all figured out. But in reality, he's feeling a little bit empty, sensing that there maybe was more to life. So he comes to Jesus and he asks this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Now, we all have those kinds of questions. What happens when we die? Will I go to heaven? Will I live forever? And how do I pull that off? Now, this guy's a high achiever. He's a peak performer financially, religiously, He's thinking, I've always had to do something, so let me ask you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I like the way the late and great Tim Keller put it, the Christian identity is the only one that is received and not achieved. The Christian identity is the only one that is received and not achieved. See, I think a lot of us, like this guy, feel like our eternal destiny is a result of our good earthly behavior. Now, now doing good things and exhibiting right behavior should be a grateful response to a loving God. But it is not what merits eternal life. It is not about what we do. It's about what has been done for us on a bloodstained cross. It is received and not achieved. But it makes sense that this guy feels this way because he's successful, he's rich, he's a climber, and in Jesus' day, society viewed people like him who were wealthy as people that God blessed and accepted. So he's working the whole image thing. He thinks he has worked his way into good standing with God. So Jesus, meeting him where he's at, offers up, guess what, a to-do list. And he says to him, well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. And as Jesus clicks off the, these, these from the Ten Commandments list, he obviously leaves out the top ones about having no other gods and not bowing down to other images, the ones that have to do with a personal relationship with God. He just lists the outward commands that other people can see, the ones that just enhance the image. And so the guy responds, absolutely. All of these I have kept since I was a boy. Got a 4.0. Looking good. And I love what it says in Mark's account of this story. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Isn't that great? He loves this guy. His heart is breaking, that this young guy doesn't get it. I think Jesus is thinking, you're a good guy trying to do the right things, but, and you look like you got it all together. You got the whole image thing working. But one thing you lack, This one thing you lack, just go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So Jesus looks at this guy and says, one thing you lack, and here it is, it's surrender. You're bowing before the wrong image. One thing you lack is complete surrender to the true and living God. Put Him first in your life. That's what will make all of your life come together for you. To See, the truth is, God really doesn't have your heart. He doesn't have your affections. And until you get that one thing right in your life, you will continue to worship and maintain some phony image. And that image is what's keeping you from really knowing God and thus really knowing yourself. And as a result, it's keeping you from really living life on this side and on the other side of eternity. And the issue here is not money. I mean, you can be dirt poor and just as lost. Jesus is saying the issue here is your heart. Who or what has it? This guy's worship of the image, his view of success, had hacked into his heart in the process, stolen his identity. There's such a better way to do this. There's a healthy life-giving cycle that goes like this. It starts with identity at the top the first thing you do in your life is get to know who God is, what He says about Himself and what He says about you. Experiencing His unfailing love for you is where it all starts. you got to get first things first. Have no other gods, no other images before Him. Last week, we saw a long list of what God says about us, how we find our true identity as a much-loved child of His. We saw 1 John 3, 1, which says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. That is our true identity. And when you start to internalize that truth, it leads to the second word in this cycle, which is intimacy. I mean, intimacy, now you're really getting to know God. You're bowing before and chasing after someone worthy of worship and affection and energy and devotion. Someone who is really good. Something that is really eternal. And your heart is captured by His love for you. And you start to feel His presence. You start to experience His peace. And you talk with Him like all the time. You're filled with gratitude every day of your life. And as a result, genuine inside-out transformation starts to take place on the inside of you. James put it this way when he said, just Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. You will begin to experience this intimate relationship with the lover of your soul. I I received an email, and I asked if I could share this anonymously. It was about part of our topic from last weekend. And she said if it would help somebody, by all means, share it. She she wrote, Mike, I'm a scared 28-year-old teacher that is battling with my identity. This week in a room filled with hundreds of people, I felt you were looking straight into my soul and talking to my heart. And by the way, you need to know when that happens, that's God. I mean, we we can't pull that off, but God does. That's how much he loves you, to get specific with you. She writes, I've been struggling for 15 years with bulimia and anorexia. I was hospitalized at the age of 19, kicking and screaming when the doctor's scale read 62 pounds. My family prayed and hoped for my recovery, but I felt like I had to do it alone. I didn't believe that God could fix my problem. After I relapsed my fifth time, my boyfriend of six years said he couldn't take it anymore and left me. I didn't blame him. I wouldn't have, want to have to deal with me either. I felt abandoned from my family and friends, and instead of seeking out God, I just sunk deeper and deeper into my bulimia. I was ashamed, and I once again planned to take my life. No one thinks that a teacher with her master's degree can be struggling with such a childish disease. I haven't kept a single meal down in over four years. I didn't know how to give it up. And then I entered church alone last week. I sat, watched, listened to the words of God. You had us write down a few things, but I didn't have a pen, so I was just going to let it go. But, but I felt pulled to ask a woman who sat in front of me for hers since we had shared good mornings before the service began. So I tapped her on her shoulder and asked to borrow her pen. And I started jotting down the passages as fast as I could. I repeated the words from those scriptures over and over before I ate lunch that day, knowing now that my body is a temple for God. I ate my first meal without getting sick in over four years. I did it. I know it's a small step, but a very large one for me. God made me, and there's a reason why He did so, and I know that He has perfect plans for my life. Draw near to God. Now I think if you're struggling with stuff like that, you need you need to find some help and, and all. We've talked about that. But it starts with drawing near to God. He'll draw near to you, He'll help you. Let His love define you. And as you do, transformation and, and even healing starts to take place on the inside of you. Plus you start to get filled up with the stuff of really successful people. Stuff like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And now you are doing what you were created to do. You're now reflecting the image of God to a watching world. As you live with humility and passion and purpose, that's the cycle you want to live in. Doing things now that are truly successful with your life. We've seen this verse each week so far of this series. And I'm guessing we'll see it again next week because I write them. I don't write the verses, but I write the talk. So (laughs) Ephesians 3, I love this. I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in him. May your roots grow down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand or to grasp as all God's people should. How wide, how long, how high, how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's so great you'll never fully understand it. Then you'll be filled with the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. When you know him and you experience his love for you, it starts changing everything in your life. So many people are caught up in titles, whether it's CEO or COO or... Senior, this or vice, that. I've had a lot of titles in my ministry life. I can remember when I got my very first nameplate for my office door. I've got it somewhere in a box. It says Mike Bro, Youth Pastor. And after that, I've had many titles: uh, senior pastor, uh, teaching pastor, worship pastor. One time I was an associate pastor, and you can know how they abbreviate that. Uh, some, people, some people call me Pastor Mike. Uh, deeper south, they call me Brother Bro. I've been called Reverend Briox, uh, But I'm, I'm just bro, just plain old bro. Because you see, I have now the only title that really matters to me. And I want to show it to you. I love this obscure verse that jumped off the pages of me years ago. It was so profound, so profound, that it made, made me change the nameplate on my heart. John 21, 20 says this, Peter turned. And Saul, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was following them. You go, wow, bro, that's really profound. Here's what's profound about it. Does anybody know who the disciple was that Jesus loved? John. Who wrote John 2120? John. That was the nameplate on the desk of his heart. That's what defined him. He said, you know what? I'm just simply a guy that Jesus loves, and that's who I am. And by the way, that's who you are too. Define yourself as someone who is radically loved by God. This is your true identity. Every other identity is just a mirage. Your worth is not found in your possessions, your reputation, or your rank, or your stats, or your GPS, or your degrees, or your title. You are not what you do. You are what he has done. You stand anchored in the love of Jesus Christ. And I'm just telling you from personal experience, genuine self-acceptance is just knowing the smile of God on your life. It's experiencing His approval. It's getting to know Him as a perfect Father and defining yourself as the one Jesus loves. And then you just live your life out of humble confidence of that. Now, I want to make sure you understand what I am not saying today. All of this does not mean that we are resigned to live mediocre, risk-adverse, non-driven, non-competitive, non-passionate, non-ambitious lives. Quite the opposite. This frees you up to become God's best version of you because now you're motivated, but you're motivated by the right things. And you're fueled by the right approval, and you're pursuing the right image. You get this right, and you will grow and flourish and start to succeed in things that really matter. Ephesians 2.10 puts it like this. For we are God's what? Masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. I love how my buddy John Ortberg says that when we get to know God, we don't just become holier. You become you The wonderfully unique masterpiece that God created as you is now unleashed to make Him known in this world in the way that only you uniquely can. You see, when we embrace our true identity as a much-loved child of God, We're not motivated by envy and unhealthy performance demands. We decrease our hunger for power or applause. We're not chasing followers and likes and shares and retweets because we already have the approval of the one who matters most. And although some applause, some acclaim, some awards may come our way, we're no longer obsessed by that stuff. And we stop running so hard trying to be somebody because we know we already are. My mom wanted so bad for me to be successful in the eyes of people. My mom struggled with insecurity most of her life, and she wanted her only son to be seen as somebody. She wanted me so badly to become a doctor. And I can't think of many more noble professions and important callings in a person's life, and I'm super grateful for all of you that might serve in the medical profession. Y'all are my heroes. But me, I had zero aptitude for it. I faint at the sight of blood. Smells make me nauseous. But because my mom never had much money or position or status in her life, she wanted that for me. And honestly, I felt a lot of pressure at school. So she was not real excited when I decided to pursue ministry with my life. She said, you're going to do what? Won't you get a real job? Now, she eventually got there, but it was a struggle. And I can remember with all that baggage, standing one day in college, I can still see myself exactly where I was standing when, when I read this thing. Uh, there was a post on the bulletin board near the, the student mailboxes. And it's an article somebody posted there about the most prestigious occupations in America. And they ranked they rank different jobs uh, according to uh, prestige points uh, uh, from zero to 60. I don't know how they got the list, but the very top of the list was a doctor at 58 points, prestige points. Second was a lawyer at 55 prestige points. Third was like a professional athlete, and then on down the list it went. So I was, I was looking for my jobs at the time. I was working three different jobs when I was a student in college. And so I'm looking for a gas station attendant. Gas station attendant, gas station attendant. There it was, right at the bottom. Ten prestige points. That was it. Now I thought, well, my other job, I have to be like physically strong to do it. So I was looking for dock worker. Dock worker, dock worker, dock worker, dock worker, dock worker. Right, right there next to gas station tenant. And I thought, well, I am the custodian at the Mount Pulaski grade school looking for janitor, janitor, janitor. There it was next to the other two, right toward the bottom, 10 points. Then my pride starts to swell up a little bit. I thought, well, you know, in a couple of years, I am going to be a youth pastor. It wasn't even on the sheet. Listen, here's what I've learned. There is nothing more prestigious you can do with your life than knowing him and making him known. That's why all of us were created. And I mean that. Listen, I mean that. No matter what your occupation is, You're called to use the gifts that God has given you and the place that God has placed you to make a difference in this world and to make him known. If you drive a truck, if you load trucks, if you take x-rays, if you dissect arteries, if you clean teeth, if you frame houses, if you landscape yards, if you design skyscrapers, if you install windows or install software, if you make lattes, fry chicken, fly planes, run a Fortune 500 company, or wait tables, see your title as someone who Jesus loves. Knowing that you're already accepted, you're already secure, and start to pursue the significance that God has for your life. Work at it with all your heart, knowing that you were made by God and for God. Don't play your life to the applause of the crowd. Don't let the image of the American dream overshadow what God may want to uniquely do through your life. I like how the message puts Galatians 6, 4, and it says, Make a careful exploration. Of who you are and the work that you've been given. Sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself and don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. I first heard about Charles Clark from Euless, Texas, a few years ago. My wife had bought a People magazine on a flight and she said, You gotta read this article. And she shows me this article called Mentor with a Mop. And I did a little research, and I found, I found a, a, a segment where he was interviewed, a, a CBS Steve Hartman. I caught up with him several years ago in one of his on-the-road segments. Just take a look at this. So cool.
0: Being a custodian here at Trinity High School in Euless, Texas, isn't exactly the most important job in America. But don't tell that... You all do that trash? ...to the custodian. If I clean a toilet... And you sit on that toilet, you can rest assured that's the cleanest toilet you will ever sit on. I'll take your word for that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Charles Clark takes his job that seriously. But his greatest asset has nothing to do with his cleaning. It's his counseling. We can sit on this rock right here. Not long after he started at Trinity 25 years ago, Charles Clark began pulling kids aside. Y'all anxious for them to find out who our new coach going to be? Kids he thought might be falling through the cracks. I'm not asking you to be a role Scholar. Kids he thought might need a little mentoring. Before you get in trouble, you're going to call me, right? Kids like 17-year-old Jesse Walewa. Mr. Clark's been looking out for me ever since I've been here. I can tell Mr. Clark anything. I know he's going to give me his honest opinion. He's very wise, very loving. I'm going to talk to you. They have never had a man tell them they love them before. Once they trust you and they know you love them, you can get them to buy into what you're selling. What does the school counselor think of you? Oh, they get most of my clients come from the (laughs) counselors. Really? That's very true. Peggy McIntyre is a clinical counselor at Trinity with a master's in social work. But she says Charles has a better way with certain kids. He's worked with a lot of our students here who ended up going to college, who ended up doing really well. So he gets results. He gets results, he sure does. He sure does. Now you don't wanna wait till your senior year. By all accounts, this custodian has helped dozens of kids turn their lives around. Not because it was his job, but because it needed to be done. Proud of you as a young man. And there's a lesson in there for anyone who feels trapped by their title. Hey, now how you doing? you going to tell me I don't have a good life? This custodial thing is working good for me. <laughs> Steve Hartman, on the road, in Eulis, Texas. I got a great life.
1: You see, that's success. Being made by God and for God. Just using wherever God places you to make Him known. So what do you say we live to know God enter into an intimate relationship with him so that we can reflect the image of God to a watching world. Let's just pray for a moment about all this. God, I'm just so grateful for the truth that you give us to get us back on track and it's it's hard, God, you know, living in this culture where there's certain benchmarks and certain images that say this is what a successful life looks like. you have to achieve this much, make this much, look like this, and all, all that stuff, God. It's just an image. And God, we all confess that we've been guilty of bowing down to that image and worshiping that image, and some of us just given our energy and our devotion, our affections to that image. But God, we just want to tell you today, we're done with that. We're going to get to know you that we were made by you and for you, that we are loved with this radical, unfailing love, that you want to do life with us and take us to the right places where we can reflect your image. God, that's, there's such freedom, there's such freedom in living this kind of life. And I just pray that everybody could grasp how high, how wide, how deep, how long your love is for them so they could live with this freedom. Thank you, Father, for, for just bringing us back to the truth, And I pray that you would, again, just stick this in our hearts today so all this week long uh, we could just know we're deeply loved by you and let that be enough. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our Church Online Live Weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point. Visit Lakepoint.church slash digital.